then this passage has something to say to you as well. In verse 30, Jesus says he can't do anything apart from the Father. He can't do anything by himself or of himself. He can't do anything independent of God. (coughs) Excuse me, God the Father. Nor would he ever want to or try to. And so... The point here is not that he is not equal with God the Father in nature or in godness, but his point is that he submits to the Father and that he would never do anything that is apart from the Father's will. Look at verse 19. It puts it this way. I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself, He only does what he sees the Father do. This is my translation. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. So verse 19 and verse 30 highlight the submission of Jesus to the Father. The Son didn't come to please himself. He came to do the will of another. So even the Son's own witness to who he is is not his witness alone. It's not his witness by itself. And verse 31 says that if the witness of the Son is the only witness of the Son, then his witness would not be true. And the Jewish leaders misunderstood this. We saw last week that later on in John's Gospel, they tried to twist Jesus' words here and use them against them, against him by saying, oh, well, your testimony of yourself is not true. It's of yourself. But he's not saying that his claims to be God are not true. That's just a misinterpretation by the Pharisees. He wasn't saying that his own testimony is of no value unless he rounds up some other testimonies from John and other people to support it. No, when Jesus says, if I bear witness by myself, my witness is not true, he means that if his testimony about himself were independent of God, if it were different from God the Father's in any way, then it would not be a true testimony. And that brings us to verse 32. The first testimony is that of the Father. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So who is the another that bears witness to Christ. It's the Father. We could capitalize the A in another there in verse 32. Jesus doesn't talk about what the Father's witness exactly is or what it looks like or when it happens. He doesn't say when or how or where the Father bears witness of the Son. So far in John's Gospel, the Father hasn't spoken anything about Jesus so that others could hear for the sake of others. So what is this witness that the Father bears witness to the Son? Whatever it is, it is only something that a spiritually-minded person could perceive. Whatever the Father's witness to the Son is, whatever it entails, it's something like the testimony of God that every believer has inside of himself. 
Last week, we looked at 1 John 5, 10, which says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness of God in himself. The witness that God bears about his Son is in, inside every believer. God testifies about his Son in the heart of every Christian. That's what John says in verse 10 of 1 John 5. He who believes in the Son of God has God's witness, God's testimony in himself. Testimony of God the Father is inside of you if you are a believer in the Son. The testimony in you is the testimony of God the Father, but God the Spirit also testifies in your spirit. Romans 8.16, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are children of of God. So you have two witnesses in you. The Father is bearing witness of the Son, and the Spirit is bearing witness that you are a child of the Father. This is something that only saved people enjoy. The Father's testimony about the Son is something that Jesus knows and experiences. It's also something that every child of God, every son or daughter of God knows and experiences inside himself or herself. So the first witness of the word is the witness of God the Father. The second witness is the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verses 33 to 35. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp. So Jesus is saying, I I was the light. I am the light. He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Remember John, Jesus is saying, You sent your emissaries to John the Baptist. You sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem into the wilderness to to check out what he was doing and to ask him, who are you? And this, of course, is in John chapter 1. And John said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the light. It's not me. And then you asked, what then? Who are you, John? What are you doing out here? What are you all about? Why are you dressed like this? Are you Elijah? I am not, John says. Are you the prophet? No. Then who are you, John? What what do you have to say about yourself? Why do you baptize if you're not the Christ? Who are you? If you're not the Christ, then please tell us who we are. We, We have to go back and And make a report about who you are. John says, I'm not the light. I'm just a lamp who bears witness to the true light. I'm the one in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the true light. The Lamb is the light. But you never heard his testimony, Jesus says. When John began his ministry, you were like, a moth to a flame at first, so it appeared. He was that burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. You sent your emissaries out to meet him. Many of you showed up yourselves. 
you were attracted to the light of this lamp. But when John bore witness to the truth about me, when he spoke the truth, when he pointed you to the true light, you didn't hear him anymore. In verse 34, Jesus tells them why he brings up John as a witness. The witness of John the Baptist is not essential to Jesus. Jesus doesn't need John's witness. Jesus knows who he is without it. The testimony of the Father is enough for Jesus. So why does Jesus mention the testimony of John? The end of verse 34. That you may be saved. It's for us. John bore witness to the truth. He testified that I am the eternal Son of God. And if you believe his testimony, if you believe what John said about me, you will be saved. But the third testimony is even greater than John the Baptist. In verse 36, Jesus says, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works that the Father has given me to complete, to fulfill, to finish, the very works that I do bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. The third witness is the witness of the Son's works. And notice what Jesus says in verse 36. The works he's talking about are the works that the Father's given him to do. More specifically, the works that the Father has given him, what's it say? To finish, to complete, to fulfill. The Son came to finish the Father's works. In a sense, we could almost combine this witness with the Father's witness because we know that the works of Jesus are the works of the Father. The works of the Son are the works of the Father. They're the works that he's been doing, that Jesus has seen him do, and now he's doing them. He said something similar back in chapter 4. You can flip back to chapter 4 and look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The works that I do, Jesus says, they testify about me and their testimony is that the father has sent me and the works that Jesus is referring to include all the mighty works that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry so far in John's gospel we've seen Jesus turn the water into good aged wine the finest of wines in John 4 <clears throat> He healed the nobleman's son who was sick in another town. In John 5, Jesus healed the man whose body had been withered or dried up for 38 years. We'll see more of Christ's work works as we go through John's gospel. And of course, the mightiest work of all is the work of redemption on the cross. The son did not finish the, the works of the father until he was crucified for his people. Only then could Jesus say, at the end, it is finished. Remember, when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he was saying that he had finally finished the works that the Father had sent him to finish or to complete. But there's more going on in this verse. In effect, in verse 36, Jesus 
is restating what he had earlier said in this chapter. The thing that started all of the trouble. Look up in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. That's John 5, 17. And when the Jews heard Jesus say this, they rightly understood him to be making himself equal with God the Father. You see, the main sticking point for the Jews was not that Jesus was doing these mighty works. What really ruffled their feathers was when Jesus equated his works with the Father's works. And so the accusation in the next verse, in verse 18, is that Jesus is making himself equal to God, the Father. But Jesus insists, I'm not making myself anything. My works testify clearly that they are not just my works. They are the works of the Father and the works that the Father has sent me to complete, to do. The works of the Son are yet another way in which the Father testifies about His Son. And so again, we could almost combine the works of Jesus that the Father sent Him to do with the testimony of the Father. They're they're almost the same thing. They're both, in one sense, the testimony of the Father. There's a fourth witness, the final witness that Jesus mentions, the witness of the Scriptures, including Moses. There toward the end, he singles out Moses. But before we look at the witness of the Scriptures, this final witness, I want want you to notice in bringing these four witnesses to bear on who he is, Jesus is not making arguments for who he is or presenting some kind of evidence, neutral evidence that anybody can see about his identity as the Son of God. It's not what he's doing. He's simply making claims about who he is. He's making assertions. He's declaring the truth. He's proclaiming what is true about who he is so that anyone with ears to hear will be able to hear the truth of the gospel. The most important thing that you can say to an unbeliever is the truth about who Jesus is. There's a place for presenting evidence and making arguments, but the only thing that has the power to save is the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is testified to by God and by the Scriptures. For us, living 2,000 years later, for us, the four witnesses really kind of reduced down to two witnesses, God and the Scriptures. John the Baptist and the works of Christ are really the same thing as the Scriptures because the Scriptures are the only way we know about what John said or what Christ did. So as far as we're concerned, there are two witnesses, God and the Scriptures. And these are the two greatest witnesses. So if you want to bring someone to Christ, figure out a way to read Scripture to them. Open up to John 1 
or Colossians 1 or Hebrews 1 and start reading about the eternal Son of God. Let the Word do its work in their hearts. There's nothing more powerful than the Word of truth working together with the Spirit of truth to overcome unbelief, to overcome hard hearts and doubts. Verse 39 says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. We must remember when we read this verse that when Jesus was saying this, there was no New Testament. None of the New Testament books had been written yet. The Scriptures that Jesus is referring to are the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus says at the end of verse 39 that they testify about him, about the God-man. So what what does Jesus mean by this? How does the Old Testament testify to Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us how this works in the previous gospel in Luke 24. Luke's gospel is right before John, so just turn back a few pages and look with me at Luke 24. First, we'll be looking at verse 27 of Luke 24. The resurrected Jesus is speaking here to two of his disciples, two of his followers, as they walk to Emmaus. They're on their way to Emmaus. And verse 27 says, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them and all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Can you imagine this experience? Not too many people have had the opportunity to hear the resurrected Jesus exposit God's Word for them in person. He took them from book to book, from section to section. Now, Remember, they didn't have copies of the Bible as we do. They didn't carry around scrolls under their arms of God's Word. Jesus went through all the Scriptures by memory. And what an encounter this must have been. But what's most remarkable about this encounter is that while Jesus is expositing the Scriptures to them, explaining the Scriptures to them, as he's going through the law and the prophets and the Psalms and showing how it all points to him and how they're all about him, these two disciples don't even know who Jesus is, that it's Jesus talking to them, teaching them, leading this Bible study. The risen Son of God is engaging them in this private study of Scripture and they don't even know what's going on. Their eyes have not yet been opened, and their ears have not yet been unstopped. It wasn't until they ate together later on that that these disciples realized who he was. Look down at verse 30. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. The Word of God finally took effect in their hearts when Jesus sat down to eat with them. Now skip down to verse 44, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things 
must be fulfilled that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. What this means is that you can go anywhere in any part of the Old Testament and find Jesus because it's all about Jesus. You can cut the scriptures anywhere, as one man has said, and they bleed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman in chapter 3 who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the greater Melchizedek in chapter 14. He is the promised king from the line of Judah in chapter 49. In Exodus, he's the greater Moses who delivers us from slavery to sin. He's the Passover lamb in chapter 12. He's the manna from heaven in chapter 16. He is the rock struck in Horeb in chapter 17. In Leviticus, he is greater than all the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. He's the true atoning sacrifice in chapter 16. He's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud and the fire that led Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the desert. He is the water from the rock in chapter 20. He is the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole in chapter 21. He is the king prophesied by Balaam in chapter 24. In Deuteronomy, he is the cities of refuge in chapter 4. He's the prophet like Moses in chapter 18. He is the one who's worshipped by angels in chapter 32. In Joshua, he's the greater Joshua, the one who leads us into the promised land. He is the commander of God's army that Joshua visits, or that visits Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. In Judges, he is the judge and the deliverer of his people. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. And we could go on in Proverbs, he is God's wisdom. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In John, he is the eternal word. God, a very God. In Revelation, he is the returning king. From Genesis to Revelation, all the scriptures speak of Jesus. They point to Jesus. They point forward to Jesus in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they point back to Jesus. We'll skip down to verse 45. We're back in John chapter 5. John 5, 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Consider what Jesus is saying here to these Jews. These very religious, church-going, scrupulous Jews. The one who accuses you, Jesus says, is the very one in whom you put your trust, or at least that you say you do. But it turns out that they don't really believe Moses either. Because verse 46 says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Why is it that people don't believe the witnesses? Why don't they believe Moses? Why don't they hear God's testimony? Why don't they hear God's voice 
in the scriptures when they're read? Why don't they see God in the person and in the works of Jesus? Why don't they believe the testimony of, G- of John the Baptist? Why don't they receive Christ as their Savior and their Lord, their Messiah? Well, this text gives us at least five reasons. The first reason is that the Word of God is not in them. Look at verse 38. You do not have His Word abiding in you. You've never heard God, Jesus says, nor have you ever seen Him. His Word is not in you, and so you do not believe. Where there is faith... There is the word of Christ dwelling richly. A person cannot be full of faith and low on God's word at the same time. If you are starving yourself of Scripture, you cannot expect to be victorious in the good fight of faith. And you you can't just hear and read the word of God out of routine only. The Pharisees did that. They were great at that. They never missed. But it never got down into their souls. It never abided in them. It never took root in their hearts. They were hearers of the word, but not doers of it. But you must do better than the Pharisees, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to exceed the Pharisees. On this point, James 1 verses 21 and 22 says, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Are you making sure the word of God is implanted in you? Does God's word abide in you? The second reason they don't hear God's hear God and believe in His Son is that they are simply unwilling. They don't want to. Look at verse 40. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You just don't want to come to me, Jesus says. And this is the bottom line reason why people don't believe. When people refuse to receive Christ or when people walk away from Christ and refuse to endure and persevere with Christ, it never has anything to do with the reasons that they give. Just know that. It's not because there's not enough evidence. It's not because there's too much suffering in the world. The real reason at bottom of any other reason that they might give is that they don't want to believe in Jesus. They're unwilling to bow the knee to King Jesus. The third reason they don't receive Jesus is that they don't have the love of God within them. Look at verse 42. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. There are a lot of baptized Christians, a lot of covenant members like these Jews who claim to be believers but do not have God's love abiding in them. The Pharisees were in this camp. They were the most religious people in Israel, but God's love was not in them. John says in his epistle, 1 John 4, 
in various places. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? The fourth reason they don't see Jesus as the Son of God is that they want a different kind of Messiah. Verse 43 says, I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, another Messiah, another Christ, comes in his own name, him you will receive. They'll accept another Messiah, another anointed one. But they won't accept the very one that the Father has sent to them. Why? Why is this? Because the Father sent a humble Messiah. He sent a Messiah who humbles himself and obeys his Father. He even obeyed his Father all the way to the point of death on a cross. This is a stumbling block. This won't work. This kind of Messiah that they could already, they could see it coming. This is not who they wanted. The kind of Messiah that the Father sent, though, is the kind that we see in Philippians 2, 6-8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be used to his own advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At some level, these Jews knew who Jesus was and what he was all about and just what kind of Messiah the Father had sent them. They knew the truth about him. They suppressed it, but it was still there. They could see it coming, and they hated it. If the Messiah is humble and obedient to the Father all the way to death on a cross, they knew what this would mean for them. Remember, they, they hated the Father. They thought they loved the Father. But Jesus calls them out and says, your, your Father is not my Father. Your Father is the devil. So they don't want what the Father has in mind. They don't want the Messiah that the Father has sent. And they knew what it would mean. They knew what a humble, cross-bearing Messiah meant for them. It would mean that they would have to be like him. They would have to be like that as well. They would have to imitate that. If they were going to follow, if they were going to accept this Messiah, then they would have to accept his way. If God is pleased with this kind of self-denying Messiah, then he'll expect to see it in his people as well. And they didn't want that. Therefore, they didn't want Jesus, and they did not receive Jesus. If another Messiah comes, they'll accept that, somebody who's powerful, mighty. 
but not the one that the Father has sent. We don't want him. That's the meaning of what Jesus says here. What about you? Are you willing to accept the Messiah that the Father has sent to you, to us? The one that calls you to take up your cross and to follow him with enduring faith all the way to the end of your troublesome life? Or do you still hope for a Messiah who will deliver you from all of that, from all of your crosses in this life? You see, the temptation that these Jews succumb to is a temptation that every covenant member faces. These were covenant members, people raised with the Scriptures in the church, so to speak. So are we covenant members. Believers must choose daily to follow the Christ who bore the cross and who gives us our crosses. This is the only Christ that the Father has sent, the only Messiah there is. His name is Jesus. The fifth reason that they did not accept Christ is that they craved the glory that comes from other human beings. They craved human glory more than they craved the honor or the glory that comes from the only God. Verse 44, how can you believe to receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. And remember earlier up in verse 41, he says, I, I don't receive honor from men. That's not what I'm about. That's not my priority up in verse 41. That's not who the Messiah is. And that's another reason they don't want him because that's what they are all about. And this one speaks to all of us as well. Perhaps the biggest obstacle to your growth in godliness is your desire to receive honor, to receive praise, to receive acceptance from man. Is there an idol of the human heart that is more destructive than the desire of human praise. The reason it's so destructive is that it keeps you from seeking the glory that comes from God. You cannot desire to exalt God and desire to exalt yourself at the same time. You can't seek glory, praise, and acceptance from man and glory, praise, and acceptance from God at the same time. You cannot put God at the center and you at the center at the same time. There's only room for one. And in Romans 4, verse 20, Paul says that Abraham grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. You see what Paul says there? The more Abraham gave glory to God, the more his faith grew in strength. The flip side of that, of course, is the more you give glory to yourself, the more you look for praise and glory for yourself, the smaller your faith becomes. And so this is the nature of saving faith. A person with strong faith is a person who is able to humble himself 
and wait on God to exalt him in due season. These Pharisees were unable to do that. Their hearts were hard. So brothers and sisters in Christ, don't set your heart on human glory. Find your satisfaction, your joy in the glory of Christ. Glory in the cross of Christ. Christ, And glory in the cross that Christ has given you. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word because it is truth and it can save us. It is mighty and strong to save our souls. Plant it deep in the recesses of our souls and our hearts and cause it to have deep roots and to bear much fruit as we seek to follow the Christ that you've sent to us and to be like him and taking up our crosses every day. We need your help, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.